Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson, I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach, and today I'm delighted to welcome Gaverne Bennett, teacher, social worker and creator of Timelines. Gaverne has taught at a number of schools in East London and has worked with students in pupil referral units and with special educational needs. He has created award-winning timelines for The Guardian, the Institute of Technology and Engineering and the British Library on subjects ranging from black literature to black history and black scientists. He has recently completed an MSc in social work with distinction. In this podcast, he talks about confidence, the power of curiosity and the importance of bringing history alive. Hello, Gaverne, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm delighted to have you you on the podcast. Thank you. So first of all, I wanted to congratulate you on all the work you've been doing at the British Library, for the British Museum, The Guardian and so on. I know you've been toiling away at this research for years and it's fantastic to see it bearing so much fruit and getting the profile it deserves. What what does it feel like? Well, it feels a bit surreal because um, I feel like, you know, somebody's been working underground for years. It feels, it feels good. I feel vindicated. I feel like I haven't wasted 20 years. Mm. My children look at me with respect now. You know, my children, <laughs> my children finally understand why I was doing all that work. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just nice to be able to talk about the stuff now, you know, a bit more than before. And I, I stayed quiet about it for about seven years, you know. I didn't really talk about it to anyone at all, you know, because you know, a lot of people now who know me are like, who've known me in the last five years or so. Be like, what you've been doing all this stuff? And I was like, well, you're here. Why didn't you say anything? Well, I said, because I couldn't, there was no, you know, push or no reason to do it. Mm. I'm talking a lot. I'll stop there, Christina. I'm really delighted that you're you're getting this recognition Mm. and you absolutely deserve it. And I mean, we've never actually met, but we've spoken and we've got to know each other a bit through email. And you responded to something I wrote. I, I can't remember what it was, a piece I wrote somewhere. But what struck me in all your emails was your incredible thirst for knowledge. In one email, you mentioned that you were learning Chinese through YouTube yes, and that you were yes. planning to read Balzac in French and yes, you were learning yes, all yes. these different things about history and so on. Where does this thirst for knowledge come from? I think you have to blame my mum because she, um, she, when we were, right, there were two arguments we had when we were children. Um, we used to read a tabloid newspaper. I won't mention any names, okay, in case it's, and, um, and my mum insisted we'd read The Guardian, right? Actually, she did. And my dad argued, there's a big argument at home, but she brought it home. So I started reading that at like, quite an early age. I was, you know, I started to realise there's a bigger world. And then she bought the Encyclopedia Britannica. And you know, when you're, like in a summer holiday or something, when you're really bored, I just started going through it. And I think from there, I just developed a... a I just want to know things. And also, I'm just, I think... As I've gotten older, I'm just aware, this is going to sound really strange. You know, you look, particularly if you see yourself historically, I realize I'm, I'm fortunate I can read and things like that, to have access to all these things. And I think we're, we're the first generation, right? You can access anything. Mm. You know, before you had to be a traveler, didn't you? You had to get on a boat <laughs> to go and see things. So for me, it's just like, it's wonderful. I want to, like Chinese, how could you have learned that before? Mm. How could you have done that? You'd have to get someone. And I think I'm just interested in people and human beings and our history. So, and that comes out in my work, you know, because I've done, 
70 timelines altogether, you know, 80. Wow. You know really? um, mm. And I think, you know, what's that? I mean, I don't mean cliche here, but you know the expression of life unexamined is not a life lived. I think it's like yeah. Aristotle. I believe that, actually. Mm, I agree. I think you, yeah, if you, there's a way you can just exist and just be here. And you know, you don't, life just passes by. Or there's a way you can be here and like, you know, thousands of generations have lived before us, right? So somebody has been through what you've been through. That's why I love reading, you see. So I, I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood. You're, you're a London boy, aren't you? You were a London yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah. So where, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? And what was your model? Because this is a, a podcast focused about work. What was your model of yeah. work growing up? Well, actually, um, I've got quite a, quite a strange background, actually, because obviously I'm of Jamaican descent, right? And I grew up in East London in the 70s, right? So, you know, so... Well, my there were people in my class that were part of the Cray, connected to the Cray family. So it was all wow, that. Wow, really? Really? What was going on? Yeah, I grew up in the time when football football hooliganism was just it was normal. I come mm. into school on a Monday morning, and the kids would be saying, oh, "I I I beat up this guy. I fought these guys." So that was just like normal. It's only when I got to university I realized that's not normal. Mm. <laughs> you don't just attack somebody on the street. But, um, so I grew up in in the seventies in East London. But well, my parents, they come from Jamaica, but they come from a quite upper middle class background, right? Mm. Um, so, for example, um, my grandfather worked for Tate and Lyle, but they invited him here every year in the 30s, right? Mm. To, come and, to come and have um, high tea at the Ritz. Wow. Because he <laughs> generated so much money for the company. He ran a lot of the, the plantations there. That's on one side. And the other side, my other grandfather, most of the roads in Jamaica, he helped build those. So they were, they were, my, my family were landowners and my parents went to the equivalent of Eton, right? They went to so, what, sorry? The equivalent of Eton oh, in really? Jamaica. Right, so it's a strange thing of being in East London, <laughs> but coming from having middle-class parents who would insist that you, you speak in a certain way or walk in a certain way. So, or you read, for example. You know, you must read, you must be educated. So, yeah. Were you teased for having a posh accent at school? I got rid of that. I had to get rid of that straight away. Uh, I got beaten up. I remember getting beaten up for that because my mum came and said, I beg your pardon. And it's just, <laughs> it was actually suicidal. The first year of my secondary school, I was like, hang on. <laughs> what? I better just start saying, what would you say? Because before I was taught to say, I beg your pardon. Will you repeat that? I was taught all that stuff. And um, it just didn't really fit. But at the same time, um, there was a, it's not so much today, but there was a way if you were educated before, you really used to mean a lot, I think. You know, now people go on Google, can't they, to find things. But I'm, I remember being respected at school, you know, for the things that I knew, mm. the knowledge base. I do remember that. And I remember feeling good in school because teachers would, you know, they'd ask me to answer questions. It's a bit mm. like that movie, um, yeah, there's a movie called Omen, Omen 2. And there's a bit where, where the Antichrist, he gets up and answers all the questions the teacher asks. I could do that at one point. I could answer... And if you asked him what year it was, when was that battle? Oh, 1345. When did this happen? And so, um, yes, yeah, so sorry to disappoint uh, listeners. I had quite a happy childhood, actually, I think. Really Good, that's not, that's yeah. not disappointing. I'm pleased you had yeah, a happy childhood. Yeah. Whereabouts in East London? Stratford. Are you in Stratford, Stratford. right? Yeah. And what, what did your parents do? Right, my mum was a social worker. Mm. She started off as a nurse and then became a social worker. Mm. And my dad was a... Um, he was a, a gas board rep. That doesn't mm. sound impressive today, but he's one of the very few black fathers 
that had a job where he had complete autonomy in that job. Mm. And he was brilliant at maths, my dad. He was a brilliant mathematician. So you're talking about work. He, he, he used to do all his work the first hour of the day and then just go to pubs and stuff all day <laughs> because he was, he was clever enough to do that. So it wasn't wow. exactly a good work model on that. He, I think what I learned from him is, you know, um, you can do, if you're clever enough in a certain way, you can do a little bit and appear like you've done loads. But, you know, and my mum, my mum did, at one point, my mum did two jobs. You talk about work, my conception of work, mm. she had to do two jobs because my parents split up at one point. So um, in terms of, I, and she, but she, I mean, she did really well. She's got, a, she lives in Jamaica now. She's got a house near, um, you know, the first James Bond movie, Dr. No. Oh, wow. She's got a house just near there. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, but my, my conception of work is a bit, it's, it's, uh, was it Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Yes. <laughs> so there's, I've got one model of do as little as you can, you know, and if you're clever and you can absorb things quickly, don't tell people. <laughs> okay. And then the other model I've got more for my mum is more, you actually do have to do the work. So which of those modes has been the prominent one for you in your career? I would like to think it's my mum's one. Mm. I would like to think that, but if I'm being honest, I, 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 I veer between the two and that's reflected in my work actually. You look at some of my work, it's actually quite intense. You know, it's a lot of, and, and so I, I, I'm the kind of person that does, can do 10 hours in one go, mm. right? And then, and then you won't hear from me again. I'm just not one of those people that if I can't see the point of something or if I think that you're asking me to do it for some reason that doesn't make sense to me then I'll do it but you know it might take me two days to do something and take mm. a day but I do one of the things I do really value in people is people that put in the work you know I respect that I, I always feel it's a privilege if people read your things right it's a privilege mm. Because our lives are short and what someone is saying is I'm taking some time out of my life. Absolutely. Um, so you went off and did a degree, your first degree was in political theory and institutions. Yeah. Where, yeah. Did you have thoughts of going into politics or what, what were you thinking at the time? No, I mean, I, I, I think at the time, I just finished my A-levels and I, if I'm being honest with you, and that's why I look at my children now and I, it's like chalk and cheese, I don't, I just, okay, I, I could go to university. I just, I chose something that I thought I was okay at. I never thought of a political career because, you know, I read Machiavelli and you read about Julius Caesar and politics to me just make like a knife in the back. Something goes wrong for you. But what I'm more interested in is systems and individuals within mm. systems. And so um, when I finished that degree, um, one of my favorite professors, they tried to get me to do an MA or PhD, but I was definitely not focused at that time like, if you know what I mean mm. I, I'm not somebody who wanted to be a politician who dreamed of no I was just I'm more interested in that political theory if I'm being honest with you I'm more the person you have at the bar drinking I'm not trying to sound cool or anything all right it's actually the truth okay I can talk for three hours about something you know an idea but if once you start to talk about moving into doing something I'm, I'm unless you're serious right you're serious about it I'm just, I'd rather just stay at the bar or, or just lie down or something. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, your, your first proper job was at British Airways and I assume you couldn't just prop up a bar chatting all day long. So what was, oh, that was, what a was, lovely job. What, 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 what was it like and what did you learn from it? Well, I think I went at the golden age because it was like the late 90s, you know? It was a whole period where you could go anywhere in the world. And I remember 
they had this wonderful thing there where you, every Friday, these flights would be available for staff, right? Okay. And you basically had to carry, just had to carry a package to somewhere in the world. It'd be like, it could be a letter. It normally be a letter. So obviously it's confidential, what have you. And then, so you, like, you might be able to fly to Rio de Janeiro and then you could decide where you came back from, right? And generally you got to fly. That's why I got my test of business class and first class. I still behave like a business class passenger now when I travel. <laughs> but you, so, you know, I flew into Los Angeles, something Los Angeles, and came up to New Zealand. I flew around the world that way, you know? Um, so it was just great. And I just, a lot of my weekends were spent like that initially, not just traveling. And you were also books editor for a black male lifestyle magazine called yeah. Untold. Um, yeah. How did that happen? And what kind of books were you reading and reviewing? I got to know the editor quite well mm. and, he, and, and I, he had a friend I knew as well and they asked me to do the films at first right because I don't think I know a lot about film but because I like psychology and so on I've always got some strange explanation for a movie like The Godfather I had some other explanation for what happened there and I said no I said I'd rather do the books in the, in the magazine and through that I met um I met Zadie Smith mm. um I did, I did her first ever interview. I did the first ever interview with her for a national paper. Ah, she's so brilliant. Yeah, we, we were there for hours, you know, for hours. And then um, uh, The Wire. I met the guy who wrote The Wire. Oh, wow. Before um, he wrote it. Um, one of them is George Pelicanos. Yes. And what happened, I got sent, because I wasn't really a journalist or anything. I just, somebody who was part of the scene. So I turned up and there's all these professional people there, you know, books editors and stuff. And then he and I just got chatting. And then we were there for like five hours. Mm -hmm. And then he invited me along to this film premiere he was part of. And then I just, so when The Wire came out and all that stuff, I already knew about it. And I, wanted to ask, I wanted to ask you because I, I um, one of your black literature timelines made me feel quite nostalgic mm. and also incredibly mm. privileged because mm. I met so many of those people when I worked at the South Bank. E.R. Braithwaite, who was called Kamal Brathwaite. Wow. Um, John LaRose, Andrew Solke, Bushi Emichetto, ah. James Berry, Grace Nichols, Linton Crazy Johnson, John Agard, Sam Selvan, all those people. And it makes me aware now how much they were pioneers, actually. Did, did you read their work as it came out or did you discover, did you discover it later? Later. Right. It's later. I discovered it in the um, really, wow, you need to, to write something about that. I wouldn't remember. I can't remember. I mean, I, I went to I went to dinner. Andrew Silky had a party, and I went remember. And his son was um, uh, a kind of uh, frisbee champion of Europe right, or okay. something. But I just I I wouldn't. I haven't got much to say about it because I don't remember conversations. But I definitely I met most of those people several times. And and John John Agard I I used to know very well actually. Um, but I mean, astonishing people and real real trailblazers and yeah and for example yeah. Andrew Zulke was living in Notting Hill was it was the Notting Hill of the Lonely Londoners did you have you read the Lonely oh, yeah Londoners? yeah yeah of course the thing about doing that literature timeline mm. I realize there's a lot of people there that they've okay they they've had an impact but their impact is getting greater as time goes on mm. it's growing so the fact that you know those people you met them you know there may come a time people don't believe you you know well, I, I, yeah, I, the thing yeah. is, I, I was lucky enough to meet lots of incredibly famous writers, but unfortunately, I can't remember anything that any of them said to me. So, so I wish I'd written it all down. Nora Ephron yeah. wrote um, uh, ah. an essay about um, 
meeting all these incredibly famous people and not be, and it's called I Remember Nothing, which is pretty much where, where I am on board of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you, after that, you went to live in France. Why did you go and yes. live in France? And uh, you were teaching English um, as a yeah. business and so on. How did, what happened there and what was it like? Well, I think, you know, it's the end of the 90s. I don't, I don't actually remember. There's a time when a lot of people were going to live in France and stuff. That programme, the Year in Provence. I wasn't part of that, by the way. There was just a whole thing where people were going to live in continental Europe. I remember that, you know, I knew other people. And I married a French woman as well. So, um, so and then we had a child and then I think she wanted to go back, you know? Mm. To, and, I, and, and I was getting a bit bored at, at British Airways. And then 9-11 happened, you know? Mm. The attack happened. And then British Airways said, you can take a year off paid. So I just thought, that's it. I'm going to go and live there. And I ended up staying there for five years six years, I think, altogether. So I was quite fluent in French at one point. I was really like, I had it down to Pat, but anyway, I'm not bad now. I'm still not bad now. And then, um, yeah, it was, it was a real culture shock because I lived, I lived in Paris. Uh, what I found was, um, the difficult transition for me was, this is going to sound strange, was hugging people all the time, kissing them on the cheeks <laughs> and stuff. That was the difficult transition. Difficult transition was, because um, they, at that time, they, they used to eat at set times, you know, to like 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock. But because I eat so much from my perspective then, I eat at 12, it finish at 2, I go to sleep, and then I feel like I've been woken up to eat again. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, looking back on it, it's one of the happiest working periods of my life because it didn't feel like work. I finished a Thursday at 2, 2 p.m., <laughs> go and grab some wine, and that's my weekend would start there. I think I'm really glad I did it because, you know, it may, it's, it's made me a different person. I've got three ways of looking at things. So I've got the, I suppose you put it the, the British English way, I grew mm. up in. I've got Jamaican culture in the background there, but there's also a French way of looking at things mm. now. Um, you know, what I really loved about this is that when people disagreed or didn't like each other, they just tell people, I don't like you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't like this, right? And I, I had a real problem. First year I was there, like, hang on. You don't have to tell people directly. I mean, all right, you don't like me and I don't like you, but you have to tell me to my face. <laughs> I, I told you this. I told you I don't like this and I don't like you. So, but, but that, it took me a long time to get out of that when I came back here, by the way. You know, for a year or two when I came back, I was still a little bit like that. I would just say, no, <laughs> that's, that's not true. That's rubbish, right? But, um, no, yeah, I recommend to everybody to go and live in another country, right? Mm. At least for a year or two. At least for a year or two. A year is not enough. Oh gosh, I I would love to have lived in front uh, Paris and the, the the left bank and so on. It sounds amazing, mm -hmm. but you know the job sounds amazing as well. But then you came back, you trained as a teacher, and you yeah. taught in some of the presumably some of the toughest schools in London. So that must have been yeah. quite a shift. I mean, what was it like? It was strange because I don't when when you've been away for a while, you move at a different speed and you think about things in a completely different way. And obviously London had changed in the time I was away, actually. I remember thinking that because actually, at the time I was away, a lot of people from Eastern Europe came to London, you know, mm. when I came back. So a lot of the children in the school were different. The time I was away, I was, I was okay, as you do, I was talking to the British Museum. I did a talk last night on the British Museum, right? Mm. And um, we're talking about the, the African diaspora in, in the UK. And like he said, in there, when I was growing up, if you said black, it meant the Caribbean or Jamaican here. Right, but in the period of the early 2000s, that changed actually. 
you talk about what black means, let's say in London, for example, right? Might mean somebody more from Nigeria or Ghana now, actually, or even Brazil. So does that change there? So I was a part, I experienced all of that. And it was, it was challenging. It was tough. And I think um, because in France, in France, I think your actual working life at that time was relatively easy. And I put it that way, you know, you just, there's no idea of working past a certain time, right? So I had to get back into that again. You know, that idea that you work longer hours. And, mm. But yeah, but, you know, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was great. I was, doing, I was teaching things that I liked. Um, and it's good to be around young people anyway, right? And my theory is sometimes people, they kind of die at a certain age, you know? They stop being curious. Mm. They feel they have to... I have to behave in a certain way now. I, I must speak in this manner to be taken seriously. And, and okay, I understand we have to, but I think something dies in people. And um, I, I can actually tell the people, you know, when you meet people, you can tell the people that kind of haven't died somehow, right? They kept it going. They kept the curiosity going. That's interest. so interesting. That is so interesting. And, and what did you do to help the children build their curiosity because some will have come from backgrounds presumably mm. where there were very few books at home and mm. not much intellectual curiosity at home either how mm. were you able to build that passion for knowledge that you have or share well, it? you know I was working quite diverse children of course so you know this is where things like black history become important because I could talk about Shakespeare the world that Shakespeare was in for example right and he would have seen black people on the screen mm. okay and so um, I remember some of the children saying, so you really know a lot. And I said, yeah, all you need to do is just read a book. That's all you need to do. Anyone can know a lot. You just need to read a book. Um, and so that was the thing. I think that's, that's what used to interest the, the kids is that I would make all these interconnections. And I'd find a way to connect it to them as well. Because that's my big thing, you know. The world actually isn't connected in a real way. And actually, if you sit down and look at things for long enough or study it for long enough, you will find a connection between two things that look completely, mm. completely disconnected, all right? And so if you're able to do that, you know, you can have, I don't know. So I remember one, one of the most interesting lessons I did, I think for the kids and for me, was just about Shakespeare's London, right? And what he would have seen during the day, okay? Because I was trying to explain why he did Othello. And I said, he might actually have met, not a ship captain necessarily, but you, you would have known of that world or Italy, for example, right? You know? And you might have actually been to Italy for all we know. In that sense, we don't know much about Shakespeare really, do we? So what, what might he have been? Okay, you know, that kind of thing. So to make it a bit more interesting. But um, it was just to keep the kids curious, you know, to say, look, we know so much, but there's always a bit more you can know about. And actually knowing stuff makes you interesting sometimes. If you know something. So, yeah. And did you feel that you were able to move their lives or help them move their lives in a different direction yeah absolutely absolutely i mean um on one level i was them at one point 20 years earlier in mm. some cases and also um i had a memory of what it was like when i was i never quite lost when i was a teenager you know when you're not sure what's going on and where you fit in or if you're gonna not if you're gonna make it right are you gonna make it in life um so um yeah, I think, I mean, I'm still in contact with some of them. Really? Now. I mean, they're, yeah, they're adults, but, you know. Um, and the sentence I kind of gave them is, is that they're, I mean, I remember saying to some of them, you know, I said, 
when I was your age, people told me I couldn't do stuff. And now I'm older, they still tell me I can't do stuff anyway. <laughs> and I realized actually, sometimes you just have to try and do something. Because when you're young, they tell you you're too young to do it. And when you're older, they tell you you're too old to do it. Um, and also, I think I just, there's certain ways that I'm confident. Can I put it that way? There's certain ways I'm actually confident. And I, I, I try to put that into the children as well, right? Mm. To say that when you meet people, right, um, you've got something to contribute here, right? You're not just a lemming sitting here in the background, right? You, you are important. You matter. And actually, the more you can read and know about things, it's the more confident you can be mm. in life, you know, to deal with things. But yeah, I feel I feel I did make a difference. And that, that went into the timelines. If you look at the timelines, really the timelines are it's for kids like that. If I'm being honest, because they're very it's very straightforward, the timelines, if you look at them, right? Um it's it's designed so that you can you can you can read it on different levels, if I can put it that way. So most of my entries are about five five sentences, four sentences if you look at them, right? Mm. But um, they, they're designed to make you curious. Mm. They're designed so that when you read it, you're like, because you know, sometimes a timeline would have one line. Shakespeare died in 1616, but so what? Okay, okay, but that doesn't, not gonna make you interested in itself, right? But if something says, this person died in 1616, at the same time, this was happening. And it makes you a bit more interesting. I, I imagine that you were kind of incorporating the principles in the timelines into your teaching work. And essentially it's uncovering, um, well, uh, uncovering many of the hidden people who yeah. contributed to history, knowledge, science, literature, and so mm -hmm. on. But also in a way, joining up some dots. Did it make a difference to people who were kind of, educated in a context where until quite recently the general sense was that history literature science achievement was all white yeah um and obviously you were showing that that was not the case could you kind of visibly see a difference once you introduce people to these concepts yes because you know um i'm trying to think of an example yeah for example right so everybody knows Henry VIII, right? For example, his, his wives and so on, what happened there. But when you tell them there was a black trumpeter in his court, right? He wasn't servile, right? Wasn't so he was actually well paid and so on. Then I can actually see that visibly changes people's idea of the Tudor world, mm. you know? And that's the thing about history. You know, once you get a broader idea of it, because I always say history's got nothing to do with history, right? It's about the future, fundamentally, and about what's going on now, really, right? And so once you read something like that, it makes you wonder about other things, even the things that are going on today that you've read, right? Am I getting the full picture? And I can actually see the amount of people that I've met and then start talking about these things and then they go off on their own tangent and they come back with something else mm. that I didn't know anything about. Um, so yeah, I think it does, yeah, I think it does make a difference. I mean, if you've been told at school that there's five writers that you should read and that's the end of it, the whole of human history, and then you discover, now hang on a minute, there's all these other writers. There's this Arab, Arabic poetry, which is beautiful mm. in itself. There's, um, for example, um, so we all know about Rome and, and Greece, but when you read about the Assyrian Empire, which is the first empire that really mm. has an army, 
a lot of the model, a lot of the terrible things we have in the world today, it starts with those guys. Then you start to think, okay, hang on, what else, what else don't I know? And it goes back to that curiosity. I think mm. it makes you curious because it, it makes you not satisfied. You know, if you, you start to think about, which is dangerous, can be dangerous, by the way, <laughs> you know, but. <laughs> dangerous in a good way. I remember going to um, the, the museum in Damascus, actually, and, mm. um, and I went on a trip to Syria and a trip to Iran um, when I was mm. at the Independent. And at, in both places and almost, every museum the guide would say so you know this is the oldest music oldest alphabet in the world and this is the oldest mm. musical instrument in the world and then you realize that so much of our civilization essentially started in in that part in the middle east yeah 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 the sumerians i mean i'm obsessed with the sumerians and the assyrians and the Assyrians are still terrifying four thousand years afterwards i'm still glad i'm not living at the same time <laughs> Because it's like, and actually, when you read, uh, that's what I'm saying about being curious. When you read the, what, what's come down to us, you can still see the human beings there. You can still see 4,000 years later on that people hated them, <laughs> you know, for what they did to them in the area. And, but you can see the echoes. And I think that's where my curiosity comes from. I think that the, the worst thing sometimes is when people's mind gets shut down, you know, at a certain point. Because our minds are beautiful, you know, the potential in them. And then, We've got imaginations and we've got brains. Yes. And we, we think in a certain way. And I just think, you know, you can lose that sometimes, you know, you can lose it. So can, that's why I'm so interested in what Johan Hari was saying last week. Because I think the whole social media thing, it shuts something down. I completely it's agree. It's really precious in human beings. And I think a lot of people don't realize that's why I could never stand in when I was in school. A child would say they were dumb. Mm. I said, hang on a minute. Do you realize what potential you've got? Your brain, right? You put every computer together on the planet and it can't match your actual brain, right? At the moment, I'm talking about its, its capacity to assimilate things. And, I, and I'd always say, look, you know, I could be talking to Leonardo da Vinci now. I don't know. When he was at school, people were not praising him or Einstein, right? You don't know. You don't know. And I don't know. So my attitude is you could be Einstein and I just want to be the person that maybe told you that. I said, don't forget me, though. Right. You write me into your life story. <laughs> That's an amazing thing to say, though. I mean, that, that what effect did it have when you said that? Well, I can actually see the like the possibility open up on, 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 on children's face because yeah. it's like, particularly in East London, you know, you know, people are not trained. Confidence is a big thing, right? Mm. It's a big thing. And a lot of people sometimes are not trained. They're not trained or don't feel confident in themselves fundamentally when it really gets down to it. You've got that false confidence people put on, you know. I don't need to burst into a room, and but you're not real confidence where you, you're sure of, of yourself, right? But you're still open as well. You don't think you've got all the answers. That's a, that's a particular kind of confidence. And that's what I try to nurture in the young people, mm. right? Is to, to say, okay, be, be clear about the, your boundaries and the things that you like but still listen to other people and still consider the possibilities in yourself, what you could do, right? There's no reason why at 15, you can't be the next Einstein. There's not that, but I'm dumb, so I'm stupid. No, hang on a minute, right? That's what, Einstein was told that a thousand times, right? What, you, this might be your time, the world is changing. This might be your time. But I think every human being, every person, 
you know, we do contribute something, right? We do, but anyway, that's just the way I think anyway. And, mm. and I know a lot of people don't think, feel that way, but if you don't feel that way, then I think it means you miss the potential of human beings around you. I think that's very, I, yeah. think, I think that's very moving and very inspiring. And, and yeah. I wondered how, because you, you did a lot of work in helping children who were at pupil referral units to get yes. back into mainstream schools. Yeah. It must yeah. be incredibly challenging. I, I went out with someone for a while who taught uh, pupils at, at, at Pru. And mm. um, obviously, you know, people's lives have gone very wrong mm. by that mm. point. Were you able to help many get back into mainstream schools and turn their lives? Because it's a huge, it's like turning a tanker in a way, isn't it? By the time someone's got to that point. Well, I'm not going to pretend like I, I helped them. It was always successful. But what I did do, I think, is I managed to, and that's why I went into social work, I think, as well. Another mm. fact, I went into social work. I managed to get them to, because sometimes when bad things happen to someone, then there's a way you can personalise it. Is that something wrong with make you feel something with you right something in your personality that made that thing happen so what i did manage to do was to to get them to to look at their life you know, in a certain way right and to see that goes back to potentialities to say look you're still 15 you know okay you're mm -hmm. not the end right and you've got all this road ahead of you and when you walk into a room people don't know what's happened to you really they don't know but the thing is is, is right at a particular age, if, people, if you meet someone who's got confidence in you, right? You meet someone, that, that's what can make a difference. Yes. I've noticed, right? Because what happens to, what happens to a lot of people in the Pru, I mean, SEN children, I worked with them before I did the social work. What happens to people is they, your confidence gets smashed away, right? And, you know, they get used to walking into a room and people, the, light, the light going out of people's eyes when they walk into the room. Mm. People not listening. So sometimes if you just meet one person that just actually does want to talk to you, right? And there's nothing in it. They just want to find out like, what you're, what's going on with you. Then, yeah, actually, that can make someone feel valued, right? Mm. Important. And, and that, what does that take sometimes? Sometimes that can take five minutes, you know? Five minutes, 10 minutes. And that's the other thing. I, I, you know, I'm one of the, the best writers I've met in my life was to come out of a pro and help him back into a school. He's a brilliant writer, right? Mm. Brilliant, this kid. And I just told him, and he, and he said, you're the only person that said that. Well, everyone can see it though, you know? Everybody can see it. I don't care who you are. When you write a poem, I said, look at the reaction in the class when you, you read out your poems. It goes quiet, doesn't it? I said, right. And I told him, that's because we live in a world where people can't say to you, to you, to you, that you're good, right? So I said, you're gonna have to find a way to work out. You know, when you've done something good, even if someone doesn't tell you, you need to look at the reaction. It's fascinating. Gavern, and it, your teaching sounds incredibly fulfilling, actually, because I, in a way, I can't imagine what's more fulfilling in life than having that saying the kinds of things that you you were saying to children, giving them hope and and uh, a sense of their own potential. So why mm. did you decide to give it up? If I'm being honest with you, I start to realise that sometimes a barrier to teach someone learning something started before they got into the classroom, yes, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. I started to realise I'm, I'm not really in the right place here. I need, I need to, so the social work, I mean, I feel really, really fulfilled in that. I mean, I've not managed to do much of it yet, but I feel super, super fulfilled um, because um, I get to talk, like, during the pandemic, during the, sorry, the early part of the pandemic, because we're not out of it, but mm. the early part of the pandemic, um, um, I spent time with a, um, 
15 year old boy, right? You know, when we went into lockdown, mm. second lockdown, and so I just used to kick a ball up against the wall with him because you know, you couldn't physically be in people's mm. houses. And yeah, that kid's absolutely brilliant, right? But actually, you'd learn to kind of like hide it because mm. you work out, you get beaten up. If he actually said his insights and stuff, and I, I told him, I actually said to him, Yeah, you're actually that shows you're really clever because what this kid was. You know the super you meet that can tell you that tell the truth about what's going on around them. It's hard to be around them sometimes because they're like, nah, that person's lying, and you find that they were right. This kid was like that, right? Mm-hmm. I just said to him, look, I said, look, instead of being afraid of it, you can you can use it, you know, for some good, this ability you've got, right? And you know, you can you can make people comfortable if you know how to use this thing, you know, if you see where people are coming from. So actually, that's one of the most fulfilling things I've done in my career, you know, working mm-hmm. with him. Because and and you're so you you retrained as a social worker. You mm-hmm. did two year MSc and you got yeah. the distinction. And you did, yes, I, did. I think you did research in um, diversifying, making the curriculum more diverse. Is that right? No, no. It was actually it was because I just finished it last year, you know. And what I did it in it was it was to do with the um, disproportionate the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on ethnic minority. So, so are you going to do um, because you have. Uh, an amazing job now which I want to ask you about in a moment but um it's not really social work is it no, are no. you going to do the social work that you trained for the answer is yes I will um because I do feel fulfilled I, I love what I'm doing now I love it but it's not I don't work directly with people in a certain way I work with people I work with people to get things done, but with social work, you actually really get into people's lives and spend mm. time with people. Um, however, I must admit, there's like, what's that story where the you know the, the guy's sailing and he's he's, he's hear this song, these murmurs are calling to him, you know, and he gets oh yes, um, this is right, um, yeah, the sirens, oh, is, the sirens, yeah, sirens, mm. yeah. I kind of feel like I'm being pulled towards the history business stuff, mm. doing this heritage stuff I'm doing. But really, the social work is really what I should be doing. That's really what I should be doing. I, I should be doing something where I'm working with people on a day-to-day level because I love academic stuff. I'm not going to pretend I don't, right? And it's very easy when you've got a lot of books. That's why I love my dissertation. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to talk to anybody. I could just say what I wanted, right? right. But at the same time, there's just something dissatisfying about it. I knew that kind of argument. I can't help feeling with you, Gavern, that you are such a rare creature. I mean, well, you know, you. men okay. who are as, uh, you know, curious and mm-hmm. with your knowledge of what kind of polymathic knowledge really of so mm-hmm. many different fields, but who can also engage with, you know, the kind of East End kids who really need mm. um, a helping hand. Uh, and of course the thing we haven't talked about you know as a black man and black mm. men in that area do not exactly grow on trees both in education mm-hmm. and in social work I, mm. I can't help feeling that um, it would be a terrible waste if you didn't go back into <laughs> the, the actual social mm. side of it as well as mm. the academic and intellectual side of it well I'm trying to create some role where I can do it all yeah <laughs> you know we have like the social contact because that's one of the things that strikes me about academia, because I could have gone to academia a long time ago, because I've got that this academic bent to me, definitely there, you know. Uh, that's what I said about when I was at university, my first degree. Mm. Um, I think, um, they tried to get me to do an MA, they tried to get the money together and everything. 
and they tried to visit me. That's when I just finished my degree and I just said no, because for me, there's nothing worse than if there's like knowledge, but it's no use to it, you know, it doesn't help mm. anybody, you know. I, I, I can't stand this, you know, you meet pompous people, people that are really intelligent and they're really brilliant. And I think, well, no, you're not actually, you know things, you know bits and pieces, right? But if, if you can't move somebody, right? You can't make them see something or feel something. And I just can't see the point of the knowledge. It has to do something in the world. That's exactly how I feel about academia. I did an MA and, uh, you know, I was being encouraged to go on. I thought, no way, no way. I just, it yeah. just feels too, too remote from life. Yeah. Mm. Which is not to say that it's not great for, obviously mm. it's important, scholarship's important, but it's just interesting because I, I do feel mm. the same. It's like, no, get me, get me out there. There's all these things we can do now, but I think sometimes we get a bit, we compare ourselves to early human beings too much, I think, right? And we don't think about how much further we can go, you know? I don't want to be too much into politics, but climate change, for example, right? I did a, a timeline about, I've done a timeline about everything, by the way. Everything. I know, I saw that timeline. It was incredible. <laughs> and, and, and when you said, you said, um, you said you wanted to resurrect a whole layer of engineers who had been ignored, who inspire a new generation yeah. as a beautiful resource to fuel the next generation's dreams, which is really beautiful. And then you say you want young people to feel that they can be a golden generation, the generation that turns the climate emergency around. I thought that was just so incredibly can, inspiring. Can you imagine, right? Can you imagine, right? We respect the generation, right? That stopped tyranny at the end of the Second World War, right? We respect the generation that sent a human being to the moon. Okay, right. The generation that turns this climate change around is going to be the greatest generation ever. Mm. All right, because we we would have saved human beings, we'd have saved the whole planet. Right, and to me, on one level, that's greater than going to the moon. Right, if we can visualize it, that makes such a huge difference. So, so tell me, what has brought you most joy in your work mm. in your career so far? You know what, actually. Um, I met some, I saw somebody recognized me on the street about four years ago, and they had read the, the original timeline of in the Guardian in 2008. Mm. And they were in the, they were at school when they read it. <laughs> and, they read, and actually they turned around and actually it, it, it determined the career that they went into. Really? Yeah. Because what, what did they go into? They did history. They studied history and yeah, I, I think it's the first time, this is gonna sound really strange, right? But you know, I get these strange things sometimes. It's the first time I felt, you know, like after I'm gone, somebody might actually remember me. Mm. I'm helping my, and actually some of the stuff I've, I've done might live on after me. And Gavin, I think you are one of the most curious people I've ever met. Well, it's been great really? to talk to you, Gavin. Thank, yeah. you. Thank well, you so much. It's a privilege. I feel privileged to be on here because, yeah, it's all kind of... Because we've been talking for years, haven't we? It's we have, yeah. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories. And I'd be really grateful if you'd share it, rate it, and or leave a review. Do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. My new book, Outside the Sky is Blue, will be published next month and the launch event will be at Waterstones Piccadilly on 17th of February. I'm thrilled that best-selling novelist Daisy Buchanan will be chairing the event. 
Details are on my link tree and it would be lovely to see you there. And do join me for The Art of Work next week with best-selling writer Daniel Pink.